Come celebrate the words of Torah with Marcus and Rachel, Rabbis Ruben and Steve. Yeah! Hello, everybody. Welcome to the first ever podcast episode of Living Jewishly with Rabbi Rachel and Rabbi Marcus. Welcome to our first ever podcast episode. It is so nice to be here with you. We are so excited to do this uh, podcast where we're going to present sort of our own lives and the way that we live Jewishly. Uh, From time to time, we'll have on special guests who also talk about the way they live Jewishly in their lives as well. See, Rabbi Rachel and I think that it's not just, Judaism isn't something to just be in a museum. It's not something to just be studied, but it's something to be lived. And sometimes we don't get to actually hear, the, see the windows of the way people actually live their Jewish lives. And so on this podcast and this show, we're going to talk about how practically we live out our Jewish lives. And I think sometimes people think that as rabbis, our Jewish lives are kind of set. We know exactly what we're doing. Nothing ever changes. We we follow every single rule to the letter. Um, but the truth is we are human and, and learning just like everyone else. Our Jewish lives are a journey and we find ourselves on various points of that path. And we're excited to kind of open the open the blinds so you can peek through the window of our of our decision making and our struggles, the things that we are loving, the things that we are struggling with and, and that are challenging us um, and and see where where we can all take it together. Maybe that will give people license to live the Judaism that they want to live. Sometimes we think we have to live these like perfect Jewish lives and it's not really like that. We all know it's not like that. It's not spray tanned. It's not polished. It's not a Facebook profile or some Instagram profile, right? But it's raw and it's honest and we want to be able to present that to you today. But in order to do that, you have to know a little bit about ourselves. So we figured we'd start with a little bit of background info about us. So who are we, Rabbi Rachel? Well, I am Rabbi Rachel, and we are married to one another. That is true. We are married. We are. Can't believe she went for me. I said I was never going to marry a rabbi, and then all of a sudden, last year of rabbinic school, in walks Rabbi Rachel, and I just couldn't help myself. So, And thank God she said yes to me. So there it is. I think it people would be interested to know that we not only are married and both rabbis, but we are co-rabbis. We work together at one synagogue. We each serve as the co-senior rabbi at Temple of Aaron in St. Paul, Minnesota. Yeah, it's unbelievable that they, they let us do that, but here we are. And it's been incredible, and I think... It works really well because you and I are very, very different rabbis. We're very different people. We are drawn to different parts of Judaism. Our brains work in very different ways. And we used to always joke that if you put the two of us together, you would make one really perfect rabbi. And this is our experiment to see maybe that could be true. Maybe. So now we're perfect, right? Exactly. Now we are perfect. We've made it. But yes, we are at least striving towards perfection, striving towards wholeness uh, together. And uh, yes, we're very different. Rabbi Rachel loves olives and I don't like olives. What else? What other ways we're different? You are drawn to mysticism and Kabbalah. Right, you went and- right off the deep end. I was starting with food choices, and you go right to like, okay, that's where we're going. Again, this is why we're very different. 
<laughs> Whereas where Marcus is drawn to a lot of spirituality, I'm drawn a lot more to the legalistic aspects of Judaism, Talmud and Jewish law. Um, and I think just that also is reflected in the way we think. Marcus is much more of an artist. I think you have a, an artist brain. You think very creatively. I'm a musician and I married a non-musician. Oh, my God. You are a big picture thinker. You always dream about what an amazing uh, outcome could look like. And then I come in and I'm much more of the detail-oriented. I kind of drag you back to earth a little bit and, and figure out the practical uh, application of some of your big dreams. Yes, yes. So thank God. Thank God we work together. I don't know what I would do without her. And uh, it really is an amazing uh, relationship in terms of the way we work together. And then we live together too as a married couple. We have a three-year-old. She turned three on August 6th, which is really exciting. Her name is Hadassah Shira. And she is adorable and infuriating and cute and wild and all of the wonderful things that the parents of three-year-olds surely can understand. Don't forget we have two dogs. We do have two dogs, Ruby and Louie, a big 60-pound Australian Shepherd mix and a little tiny six-pound Morky. And they are... Best friends. Best of friends. We like bark at each other all the time. <laughs> they have a weird relationship. So we have a nice uh, we, we have a nice way of living here in St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, it's just uh, really unbelievable. So what are we talking about? Are we talking about something? Are we just talking about this today? Or are we just are we going to go on to our topic? Here? I think we have a topic today. We have a topic. And our topic is... Our topic is keeping kosher. Keeping kosher. The ways of eating of the Jewish people. I think if you have to think of one aspect of living Jewishly that affects us the most, it probably is keeping kosher. It affects us every day, multiple times a day, every time we decide what it is that we're going to eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and everything in between. We have to think about what our what our values are and, and how we're going to keep kosher. Yes, 100%. Exactly. Keeping kosher is so important. It makes us think about God at every single moment, um, brings in holiness at every moment, helps us to remember um, during the things that like really like when I'm hungry, I just want to eat. You know, you remember all of a sudden in that moment that like God is there and at the most coarse moment of our lives when we're like putting things in our mouth and trying to survive, we also remember the most spiritual things, the most transcendent things. So I think kashrut is extremely powerful for both of us. Yeah, absolutely. But I think there's also a lot of misconceptions around keeping kosher. I know a lot of people have asked me, is kosher food food that's been blessed by a rabbi? And the answer is no. That would be amazing if that's all it meant to keep kosher is I just had to bless my food and then I could eat whatever I wanted. That would be a totally different uh, ritual. But unfortunately, that is not this one. There are lots of intricate rules about what makes things kosher, um, but it has very little to do with being blessed by a rabbi. Yeah. I mean, like it, it, it really is, is there's just so many, mis- we're going to get them to misconceptions, which is wonderful. Um, and also like, I think people are, fr- don't know what we do, right? Like, so around in our St. Paul community, people are like, oh, should we invite the rabbi? Should we not invite the rabbis? Can they drink beer? Can they drink whiskey? Can they drink this? Can they, can they eat that? I'm like, yes, I could eat all of it. No. <laughs> um, you, you know, they want to know what we do and we want to be part of everything. We don't want kashrut to sort of separate us from rest of people maybe who don't keep it as strictly as we do um and so hey 
good to know. Exactly. And I think we'll get into that a little bit more later about um, how we decide that some of our competing values. I think those are the most interesting conversations for us as rabbis. Um, It's one thing when the value system is very clear and it's very easy to make a decision, um, but that's not quite as interesting as when you have different values that are coming into conflict with one another. Um, And I think we experience that quite a bit with kosher and with keeping kosher and how we decide uh, what, what, what we eat and where we eat. What is kosher? So I would say there's a few different areas of kosher that that really define it. Uh, the first and probably um, easiest to understand is that there are certain animals that are kosher and certain animals that are not kosher. And those lists were primarily developed in the Torah itself. The Torah either gives us rules for what is kosher, like with mammals, where they have to have split hooves and chew their cud, um, or it just gives us a flat-out list of these birds are kosher and these birds are not kosher, and we just follow the list as best oh, as we can. There's nothing more disgusting than a solid one-hoofed animal. It makes it gross. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, well, we can go into a whole podcast about turkey and as if turkey kosher, because that's a whole other issue oh, of yeah. turkey is not on the list of kosher animals in the Torah, but through a fortuitous uh, misunderstanding about what a turkey was, I think the what at least the story I was told is that when Jews came to the New World and saw turkey for their first time, they said, "Oh, this must be what chickens look like in the New World." They must have had like huge chickens though, because like turkeys are really scary. Like they're huge. Remember we would bump into those like wild turkeys up in upstate New York. Oh my. God, they are so scary. But by that point, they were tough. They were tough back then. At that point, they thought they were chickens. They started eating them, and then it was too hard to go back. We were already eating turkey, and so like turkey, turkey just so became kosher. Should we make turkey not kosher today? Let's do it. Let's like make a new. Actually, no, it's probably not a good idea. Yeah, let's let's keep all the foods kosher that are kosher. Yeah, some people like turkey. Exactly. Okay. But anyway, so there are certain animals that are kosher and certain animals that are not kosher. Then within that, for mammals and poultry, um, you also have to take the kosher animal. So let's say a cow, it's a kosher animal, but not every piece of beef that you see in the supermarket is kosher because in addition, it also has to be slaughtered in a specific kosher ritual slaughter. And now we're going to go into extremely detailed explanation of how you slaughter an animal. We are not going to do that. In fact, no trigger warnings needed. We are not going to go into detail. Uh, (laughs) Yes, but shlita or kosher slaughter is a certain way we uh, slaughter Jewish animals. It was, uh, I think, believed to be at one point uh, much more humane, although the animal is not a human being, but it is much more uh, a quicker way of um, slaughtering an animal. Um, But regardless, we have to eat animals like that when we do. Yeah, and also fish. Don't forget about fish. Right, so then fish uh, in... Very important Judaism. Yes, fish is very important. It needs... Fish is kosher if it has scales and fins. Yes. So things like salmon and tuna are kosher, but... I don't know why you'd want to eat fish in the first place, though. See, I love fish. This is a, this is a, I shouldn't have said olives. I should have said fish, because fish is our breaking point. Fish. Ra- Rabbi Rachel loves fish of all kinds. She loves the fishy fish. She loves the tuna fish. She loves all kinds of fish. And like the smell of fish is is gross to me. I feel like a, as as a Jew, though, I've had to kind of accept the fact of at least eating salmon, which I do, with like sort of a smile on my face, but. Rabbi Rachel craves the fish, right? I do love fish, but if you know Rabbi Marcus at all, you'll know that him having food aversions is not quite unique. He has quite a few food aversions. But anyway, so, but see, but fish does not need to be slaughtered in any particular way. So any fish that is caught on a hook or in a net, all, all is kosher. Nothing, no slaughter. You know the famous explanation for that, by the way. What's that? 
It's about Noah and the flood, that all the other animals were killed in the flood, besides, of course, the animals that Noah saved. But did Noah bring fish on the ark? No, he didn't, because fish love floods. They're like, oh, it's great. There's a flood. It's wonderful, right? Because the fish were supposedly very righteous animals, and that's why we can eat fish with anything. It's wonderful. It's easy to eat fish. It's great. The more you know. The more you know. So anyway, so we have fish. And so it's also, there's like, there's the permitted and the forbidden animals. There's also, um, so milk and meat is also something forbidden in the Torah. And it's because in the Torah, it says that you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk, right? And it actually says that three times. And the way our rabbis read that, understand that, interpret that, is that we can't cook those meats together. We can't eat those meats, those, those things together, milk and meat products. And we also can't profit from it as well. Um, so basically, we avoid eating milk together, no cheeseburgers, no uh, pizza with meat on it, which I really miss. That's chicken a, parmesan. Oh, chicken parmesan is so good. <laughs> oh, I can't think about it right now. Okay, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Okay, so there's the chicken parmesan. Sorry. There's mixing milk and meat together. And then there is also utensils, which is like a whole other journey. So the rabbis felt that when you cook something on a surface or on a metal surface, on something like that, let's say a frying pan or a, a pot of some sort or in the oven, when it became hot, the taste of the unkosher food or the taste of the food actually gets absorbed into the walls of the oven and or the pot or the frying pan or what have you. I say what have you. Success. Um, and it actually stays there and it gets stuck there. And so the next time you cook something in that pot or pan, it actually gives off that taste into the, the food that you're going to eat. So it makes it, uh, if that taste is an unkosher taste, right, that New food now absorbs the taste of the food you cooked in before. Sort of like, what's that metal that they always use that people use over and over again? Cast iron. Cast iron, right? Just like, you you know, don't wash it. You should probably wash it, but regardless. So anyway, that makes us avoid many, many different things. That's why Jews, a lot of people have um, separate pots and pans for, for milk and meat. Um, and that... Honestly, what it enables to, what one has to do eventually, if one follows this completely out, a lot of times it makes it really hard to eat out in a non-kosher restaurant because you never know how they made that, that what frying pan they used, they cooked that in or whatever, whatever. So you end up having a very hard time sort of eating out at non-kosher restaurants, right? Yeah, we saw that a lot when we did used to eat out at non-kosher restaurants and we were living in New York and we used to eat at diners. And for those of you who have eaten at a diner, there's kind of a big griddle grill and they just throw everything on there. So there's bacon on there, there's eggs on there, there's pancakes on there. Everything's kind of what made cooked it on so there good. together. <laughs> and so even if we were ordering, let's say, eggs that had nothing non-kosher in it, the egg itself is totally kosher. Once it's cooked and you're kind of seeing it cooked in the same cooking utensil as the other non-kosher ingredients like bacon, it started to feel like, mm, this probably is not so kosher. So we moved to a place without diners. Perfect. <laughs> yes, exactly. So that's what, that's what would happen. I remember, I remember looking at that. So before, we, we, we kind of explained, I think, most of the, the basic details of Kashrut. And obviously, if you have any more questions, feel free to email us at livingjewishlypodcast at gmail.com anytime and we can answer more of your questions about kashrut 
Okay. <laughs> so I think we've said enough about Kashrut and kind of sort of what are the basic details. Obviously, there's a lot more to talk about, but we also wanted to talk a little bit about how we sort of chose Kashrut, how we sort of grew up, because I think we have a little bit different stories. Start with you, Rabbi Rachel. Sure. So I grew up keeping kosher um, in in some sort of fashion. We kept kosher in the home. We kept kosher out of the home. We would eat out vegetarian at non-kosher restaurants. So we could go to an Italian restaurant and get pasta or get pizza um, as long as it didn't have any meat on it. Um, uh, and That was it? That's your whole story? Um, uh, my parents started keeping kosher when I was two years old. So I, um, don't remember any time that I did not keep kosher. Although my parents like to tell a funny story that when I was two years old, I went out to McDonald's with a friend and her mom and I came home and I said to my mom, Oh, I had the best cheese sandwich. And she thought, oh, that's nice. She went in and just had, you know, had a, gave her a cheeseburger without the burger. And they just gave her cheese. That's so thoughtful. And then my mom asked me, was there any brown on that cheese on that cheese sandwich? And I said, yes, it was so yummy. <laughs> so apparently I did have a cheeseburger at one point in my life, although I do not recall. I do not remember it. But from then on, we've been keeping kosher. And I really haven't experienced a time of not keeping kosher. There is one story of when I was studying abroad in Morocco where I did uh, partake in non-kosher meat. But that can be a story that we save for another podcast another time. Ooh, that one's going to be a good one. So for me, I have a very different story. Um, I grew up in a Reformed Jewish household that um, did not keep kosher. Um, much respect to my parents, much love. We did not keep kosher. Uh, my my parents loved Judaism and raised me very actively Jewish, but for them, really what mattered were the ethical parts about Judaism and the, sort of the ritual laws were not as important. Um, so we really were, were raised eating most things. But What's really interesting, I think, about it is like if I think back to my life, for some reason, my parents never wanted me to put like bacon on my hamburger. Like they didn't, they, they never ordered it at restaurants and they didn't like, they would always look at me askance when I would order bacon or, or order a cheeseburger or something like that. We also didn't do that. But yeah, we didn't keep kosher. Right. And, and so it's, it's, it's a very funny thing. We never had pepperoni pizza in the house. Like that just wasn't a thing. I rem I was the one who brought pepperoni pizza in the house when I was in high school because I liked it a lot. And my parents thought I was crazy. There's, you know, there was something that was just in their background. They didn't do it, even though, uh, you know, they would eat other unkosher things, uh, you know, outside the house. Um, but eventually, I decided um, to switch from reform Judaism to conservative Judaism, which we can talk about another time when I was considering. Um, seminaries and rabbinic education, and because of that, I, I I decided that I wanted to be fully kosher, as is what we do in the conservative movement, at least for our rabbis, um, is that we should be fully kosher, fully observant of those laws. So it, literally, it happened in one day. I think it was I was in I must have been like twenty two, twenty three, living in Brooklyn, and like one day I just said, okay, I'm going to I guess I'm going to conservative rabbinic school. I decided no more. I'm not. I'm not. Eating, I was eating all kinds of uh, non-kosher foods, and I just all of a sudden stopped eating kosher foods, which is a very strange story. But it is, if you know me, that is te that tends to be the way I make decisions. All of a sudden, impulsively, and I just stick to it the rest of my life. So, so did that, you did you have a last hurrah? Did you go and have no. like your final trafe, your final non-kosher meal? I still think of it. I do. Yeah, I never, I never had that. I never because I, I was immediately I was just like, okay, this is what it is right now. And I was, and yep, yeah, should have had the last hurrah. 
We used to joke in rabbinical school that there was treif day once a year where all the rabbinical students could go and have non-kosher foods. Of course, that was just a joke. We didn't actually do it, but we always said, okay, before we become rabbis, we'll go and have all of our bacon and cheeseburgers and chicken parmesan, but alas, never happened. Alas, never happened. I don't want it to seem though, like we just like are constantly craving uh, unkosher foods all the time. We really aren't. We've pretty much mostly forgotten about eating non-kosher foods, um, which is interesting. You think you love these things so much. I remember loving these things so much when I was younger, uh, eating chicken parmesan all the time, all the things like this. And now, now I, I really, I, I live without it, which is, which is, uh, and I don't, I don't really think about it so often, which is uh, a funny thing. I joke about it, but I don't. We joke about it all the time, but, but I don't think about it that often. I'm yeah, sure I have zero. It. I really have zero craving for non-kosher food. I mean, part of it is because I've never tried it, so I don't even know what I'm missing. But there is something visceral once you've designated certain foods as kind of within the bounds or out of the bounds, then there's, it kind of, it affects how you think about them. And it's kind of in your gut. It feels, I don't know what I would do if I was presented with, with mamash, with real non-kosher food. I'm, I'm not sure I would even be able, even if I decided not to keep kosher anymore, it would take a lot to, to have that first bite. There's something except for that one in your gut, Marco, but <laughs> we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> Yes, exactly. But it's amazing like the power of the human spirit to to push something to the side, right? And the human mind to say, you know, that's not that's not for me right now. Not that not that unkosher food is evil or anything. It's just the way we we uh make life like make our lives meaningful and draw ourselves closer to God. Now. Yeah, and I think I I mean I do want to say that I know that anytime we talk about food, it is sensitive. You know, there's a lot of stigma around food in our culture. There's a lot of classism around what foods are good foods and bad foods and and designating certain foods as good and certain foods as bad. That's really problematic and and we're not trying to engage in any of that. You know, I don't think that I think kosher is its own category of um, setting aside uh, boundaries. I think boundaries in Judaism are really important and putting uh, fences around different behaviors in order to be mindful about them in order to raise our consciousness, consciousness level. Um, but, but I do just want to mention that I know that any discussion about food is inherently political and can be uncomfortable and can be triggering and can be problematic. So I just want to kind of name that as we move forward. Yeah. So I, I, I think this is the time we talk about our trip to California. Is this our tri- time we talk about our trip to California? I think it is. So about, what is it, four or five years ago, we we took a trip out to California for a good friend's wedding. We yeah. went up to the Bay Area. We were, the wedding was in Palo Alto. Um, but we decided to do some traveling while we were there. We went to Monterey and we went to a lot of really beautiful places along the coast in the Bay. Yeah, and up, up to this point with us, we were keeping kosher According to our definition, at least, meaning uh, we didn't eat the forbidden animals and we didn't have we didn't mix milk and meat together, but we didn't worry about pots and pans and we didn't eat, worry about outside of the house. outside of the house. Right so. in the house, we had two separate sets of pots and pans and two separate sets of, of dishes. But when we would go to restaurants, we would eat kind of how I grew up. We would eat we would go and eat vegetarian. So we would go to an Italian restaurant and get pasta or pizza, a Mexican restaurant get vegetarian burritos. We would kind of just eat as long as we weren't actually consuming um, any of the forbidden animals or mixing meat and milk to our knowledge of course when you go out to a restaurant it's always it's always challenging they you know sometimes in the places you least expect it that chicken stock will just come and and sneak up on you and you're accidentally eating things that you wish you weren't eating oh man there was this one time where i was eating at a diner with my congregants before i started doing this i was eating at a diner with my congregants in new york when i was when i was when we were living in new york 
and I um I, I ordered an eggplant parmesan uh, hero, but they mistakenly put chicken instead, and they thought I said chicken parmesan. Um, and I ate it, and I was so awkward because I was eating chicken in front of my congregants in that way. And I'm like, ah, it's, it was, it's like a really hard moment because you really people make mistakes all the time when you water out like that. And it's kind of a risk that you, you you sort of take in that regard. But when we were in California, we decided, well, we're in California. There are all of these really great vegetarian and vegan restaurants where they don't serve any meat. And so we don't have the concern that they might have cooked meat on the frying pan right before us or that there might be meat stock. Um, So we decided, okay, well, while we're out in California, let's try it. Let's try to only eat out at kosher or vegetarian or vegan restaurants. We were living near the best vegetarian and vegan restaurants in the world. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. If you ever find yourself in Monterey, this is not an ad, but if they want to sponsor us, they are more than welcome. Oh, can they sponsor us? There is a vegan Mexican restaurant in Monterey. I wish I remembered the name of it. It's escaping me at the moment, but it is delicious. I think we ate there. Definitely not going to sponsor us. We don't remember the name of the... (laughs) Well, I think we ate there three times in one one weekend in Monterey. It was incredible. Rabbi Rachel actually made me go back again that night, actually. We ate it. And we're like, I'm I'm full, but I could actually eat more, and I know we're not going to be here forever. So we went back for nachos afterwards, and I brought that back. So Exactly. So we decided, all right, we're going to try it. Let's see how it feels not to eat out at non-kosher restaurants any longer while we're in California, while we have access to all of these vegetarian and vegan restaurants. Um, and then I think we were surprised. We were surprised at how good it felt. Yeah, we liked it. I, I think for me a lot, it was like I walk around with a, a kippa on all the time, and sometimes I even walk around with my seat seat out or my – uh, my uh, the, the strings on the side of my garment out, and it felt really weird, like walking into a non-kosher restaurant, even though I was like eating uh, kosher things, right? Um, I was. It felt weird to be wearing these Jewish symbols in a non-kosher restaurant, eating things. So, so that 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 was, I think, well, one of the big things for me is being able to sort of wear those things and sort of wear my Jewish identity in a way that I didn't feel so kind of subconscious all the time. Yeah. And I think for me, it also was a big step to move away from how I had been raised. So, you know, if we talk about that, our Jewish lives are are this constant journey and we're constantly struggling and exploring where we want to go next. It felt like a big step to move away from how I had been raised and decide, okay, well, now I'm an adult and I'm going to make a conscious decision to change my behavior a little bit, to, to experiment with other things and see how they feel and see what sticks. So we ended up coming back from California and we, we lived in a country town um, that really had almost no vegetarian restaurant. I think the nearest, if I write, the nearest vegetarian place we ate at was um, Pure City, which was our favorite. Oh, my God. Ugh, if Another plug. If you find yourself in Pinebush, Pine New York. York, I don't know why you would find yourself in Pinebush, New York, but if you do, Pure City vegetarian restaurant. Oh, delicious vegetarian Chinese food. So, so, so good. But it was like, yeah, it was like a half hour away from us. And it was like only, a, it was it was relatively, it wasn't cheap, right? So it was kind of a special day kind of thing that we would, we would go there. So it really was, you know, it, it was difficult, I would say. It is it is difficult um, to keep this because when you live in a place like that, when there aren't so many vegetarian restaurants, because it really makes it hard to eat out. So eventually, you know, through the study of of the laws, and and, and I actually took a course on kashrut at JTS um, and and did some extra study even after I was ordained on kashrut. Um, I figured out that there was a way that we can actually eat sushi out. So we actually um, <laughs> eat very plain sushi um, at sushi restaurants. So I like I get uh, 
tuna avocado rolls or a simple something. Uh, and so, so does Rabbi Rachel. And, and that's a way, you know, almost everywhere you go, you can usually find some kind of sushi place. Although, you know, eating sushi everywhere is, might not be a great idea. Uh, yeah, we usually. I think this requires a little bit of clarification about why sushi yeah, why might be sushi? okay. I mean, we had talked a little bit before about using utensils and how utensils and frying pans and things like that can transfer the taste of the of the food that had been cooked before it. Um, but that's not the case with cold food. You really, it really requires heat for that process to take place, for that taste transfer to take place. So when you have cold food, like as long as it's not spicy food, if you have cold, bland food like a salad, um, it actually wouldn't transfer. So you could make a, a salad in a bowl um, that had been used previously to mix, I don't know, cold meat. <laughs> I don't know what cold, cold shrimp. Is. I don't yeah, know, cold whatever. Shrimp. Yeah. Like at a sushi place, they might have used the same thing for that, right? But they, of course, would wash out the bowl between, right? The rice uh, is usually made in a rice maker. It's only used for a rice maker. Obviously, the 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 seaweed paper is seaweed paper. It's kosher. Uh, and tuna is tuna, right? Avocado is avocado. It's all exactly. kosher. So even though they might be preparing it on the same sushi bar that they're preparing the non-kosher fish, um, because it's all cold, it, it's it's pretty okay. And I think like, taking this lenience and taking this allowance for us. And look, there always could be some mistake, right? There, something could end up in the sushi roll that we didn't know was going to happen. Uh, and, and, and something can always happen. We were eating this thing called uh, white tuna. There's this thing called like white tuna that actually is a bottom feeder fish. It's not even tuna. So what white tuna is not tuna, my friends. Shout out to the waiter at Sakana oh in St. Paul, which is our local sushi place. <laughs> Amazing. We, we were eating Talk out. Through. Yeah, we were eating out at this sushi restaurant and he saw Marcus's kippa and we were kind of explaining, oh, we need to make this substitution. And he said, is it because you keep kosher or because you keep the Jewish dietary laws? And we said, yes. And he said, well, I used to work for a kosher chef. So I actually am very familiar with all of the kosher laws. And then when we went to order a roll that had white tuna, he said, nope, you can't eat that. That's not tuna. That's not a, it's a non-kosher fish. First, first I said, yes, I can eat that. <laughs> Give it to me. <laughs> but Shout out. He is our new favorite waiter. We should send him a hashtag living Jewishly shirt. <laughs> we should. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yes. Yeah, so I think this like really opens up a lot for us. You know, so we can go to a restaurant that's not, you know, it's sometimes hard to find a vegetarian only restaurant. You know, it serves absolutely no meat. That's sometimes hard to do. Thank God in Twin Cities, there's a bunch of good ones. It's usually possible to find a sushi restaurant. So it actually always gives us sort of a place that we can eat at with, with friends and congregants and, and, and things like that, family members. So. Yeah, but I think the question now, so we've kind of covered how we eat at restaurants and, and we'll say that it, it's, it can be challenging, but I think we're also, uh, we appreciate the, um, the boundaries that it sets around our eating. Um, but, but then it, it brings the question of what do we do at people's houses? Uh, we live in a community where a lot of our friends and congregants and community members do not keep kosher in their homes. And that's a big question of, well, what do we do about eating at their houses? Yeah, and, and this is really important to us and I think shows a lot about how we, how we think about Judaism in general um, is that it, in the end, we take a lenience to eat at our congregants' houses. We get invited over all the time and we really believe that eating together is a way of bringing people together. And when you eat at someone's house or eat with someone, it brings you together and brings you in a relationship in, in, a, in a unique way. And we didn't want to say no to like every single invitation to someone's house of, of, of 95% of our congregants. We didn't want to do that. So we decided, well, 
we'll take a lenience where we're not going to do it in our private life. In our private life, we're going to only to eat out at certain places, in our home, obviously, uh, even more so. But eating at Congress House, we're going to just ask them, don't serve us unkosher animals, right? And, and only animals that were slaughtered in a kosher fashion. And don't mix milk and meat together, and we won't make a problem. We won't make a fuss. And I think, you know, this kind of shows... Um, maybe a, a separation that we're making between ourselves and and how kosher is observed widely today. I think a lot of kosher is about trust, and it's really painful when someone won't eat at our synagogue or our house because they don't trust us. They don't trust the kosher that we are keeping, um, and you see this a lot with interdenominational Judaism. You see this with being Orthodox and conservative and Reformed Jews, that, that sometimes there's this lack of trust that that I don't I don't trust that you are following the laws the way I understand them or that you um, have as much knowledge as I do. Um, and I think when we eat at our congregants' houses, it's really a statement of trust. It's saying, look, we don't think that you're some faceless restaurant that is going to put things into our food that we don't that we don't anticipate. Um, we trust you. We trust that you are going to do your best to respect the way that we live and the way that we eat. And we're going to enter into that really sacred and holy relationship with you. Yeah. I think it's so, so important exactly what you're saying. Trust is just so important. And just putting trying to put relationship first and put, putting other human beings first than our just our our private religious practices, trying to live a human-centered Judaism, which is something that um, I really, really, really feel very, very strongly about. And which, to be honest, is quite a departure from the traditional sources on kosher. Yeah. That a lot of the traditional sources on keeping kosher, part of the reason why they have all of these laws in place is specifically to keep us separate. They don't want us to be eating and mixing meals and, and breaking bread with people who don't keep kosher, which in their minds back, you know, thousands of years ago, in their minds were non-Jews, right? They thought that all Jews kept kosher and they were trying to keep separation. They were trying to keep distance between the Jews who kept kosher and the non-Jews who didn't keep kosher, thinking that if, you know, it's the that famous joke, it might lead to mixed dancing, right? The idea <laughs> that if we break bread together, we will form these relationships and we'll, and we'll mix together in ways that the ancient rabbis were trying to avoid. Right. And on the other side of the coin, like eating together of well, because you have to eat kosher, it will actually bring Jews who do eat kosher closer together. And this is this is really true. Like when you go to a kosher restaurant, you kind of see the same people again. There's less of a pool that's going to go to the kosher restaurant. You kind of see the same people over and over again. And it sort of creates a different kind of familial uh, cheers like feeling to it, which is which is important. We want to we want to have those feelings as well. I will say the first time I ever walked into Basil, the kosher restaurant in St. <laughs> Louis Park, I went to pick up our order. And the guy behind the counter says, oh, you're Marcus's wife. And it was as if we had known each other for years and we were best friends. And, and it really was. It was this and a very familial, a very familial feeling. So that's true. Hashtag when a New Yorker moves to uh, Minnesota. <laughs> Gets very familiar with the one pizza place they can eat at. So exactly. But yeah, I mean, I think it was a real values-based decision for us that, yes, it is a we hold kosher to be a very important value in our life. We find a lot of meaning in it. We think it's the way that God demands of us to, to behave in the world and to eat in the world. And at the same time, we hold relationships to be very sacred and very holy. And we are unwilling to sacrifice one for the other. So that leads us into this kind of gray space of compromise, which is not comfortable for a lot of people, but 
for us is worth it. It's worth it to um, to navigate each and every day how we are going to both hold true to our values of keeping kosher and hold true to our values of of building sacred and holy relationship. Yeah. And it, I think it's because kosher also is just like so powerful. It really is so powerful. It really does. When you stop eating with people, you really do get cut off from them. And we don't want to be cut off from our congruence. We don't want to be cut off from those people. We want to feel together and feel part of a community with them, which is why we why we make that leniencies. Okay, so we promised to talk about some misconceptions. So we have more misconceptions to talk about. Right. We talked about that kosher food is not blessed by a rabbi. That is very true. Um, but there's also a misconception that kosher means healthy. You often see a kosher label uh, put on the same part of a package as organic and non-GMO and all of these kind of healthy, uh, healthy, healthy eating uh, buzzwords. Um, and they'll add kosher to that list. And we can guarantee that kosher food can certainly be not healthy. <laughs> there is no uh, no health judgment on kosher food. There is very healthy kosher food. There is kosher food that is delicious, but maybe does not give you uh, sustained health benefits and, and everything in between. 100%. Yes. So yes, definitely the, the health benefits for sure. Um, we talked about the blessing, right? That, that kosher food isn't just blessed. And also... One last con- misconception that we have a lot is that, like, some people think in order for our food to be kosher, it has to have a kosher mark on it, right? It has to have a hex- what we call a hexer on it or some a symbol that says this is a kosher food. And that's not necessarily true. Uh, actually, hexers and, and kosher symbols are very late. And guess what? They almost only happen in America, right? So I actually went to... Uh, Germany a couple of years ago, and and very 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 few foods there have hexers on them. And actually, there's a book that's given out to the Jewish community where you you look up the food and look up the company of the the food in in this book, and it tells you whether it's kosher or not. Right? That's the way that community does it. It does it, it does not because almost nothing has a, a kosher symbol on it. Right? It's only in this unique time in America we live in when 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 we Jews we can have these kosher symbols and everything like this, and it's amazing. But as, as helpful as kosher symbols are, sometimes they can be very restrictive and it also gives a lot of power to those author, uh, companies who are authorizing and putting those symbols on foods, right? Because they can, on whatever grounds they want to, take or give back, take a, take a symbol away or put it back and that can cause harm to a company. Yeah, it's really a problem in Israel. In Israel, the kosher industry is uh, very corrupt and very uh, political, um, and I once heard a story where there was a egalitarian uh, uh, tour group that went to a hotel and they wanted to borrow a tour scroll. A lot of hotels in Israel have tour scrolls that you can borrow to do prayer services. And they wanted to do a prayer service where both men and women would, would participate. And the hotel told them, no, we cannot give you our tour scroll to do a mixed prayer service because if we do... Uh, the kosher agency will take away our kosher certification. They will say that this hotel is no longer kosher and that will hurt our business. So the idea that a kosher industry, a kosher organization could come in and, and take away a, a kosher certification for something that has nothing to do with food, nothing to do with kosher, um, it's really problematic. It's really challenging. Yeah, really, really, really difficult. Very, very difficult. So we have one last segment to do, which I, I hope we can end with each time. What I love about kashrut and what I struggle with it about. What I love, because everything in Judaism, you know, you could probably understand we love a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of things about Judaism. Hey, we're rabbis. But, but we don't want to hide the fact that we also, like, we struggle with a lot of the things that we love. 
as as a lot of good things in our lives aren't just like 100% good all the time and cotton candy, right? But there there's things that we struggle with too and we want to let you know about that as well. So, things that we love about Kashrut and things that we struggle with. Want to go first? Do I want to go first? Yes, I do want to go first because I love Kashrut in the fact that it really does make me mindful every moment when I'm eating um and it and it does um sort of make me feel that holiness when I'm eating something different and special. I love going to kosher restaurants. Like I love that feeling of going into Basil and like they know me there and I, I love seeing and they sometimes have a shiur there where they're teaching, somebody's teaching some Torah there. It's wonderful. I really I really enjoy that and appreciate that 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 sort of Hamish feeling of of kashrut. And yeah, I, I really love how it's in us in every single moment in our lives. I think the thing I, I, I do I do really struggle with is yes, that way it does separate us off. And and still to this day, like is it harder for us to eat out and be in relationship with our friends? Yes, it is. I'm sure there are many, 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 many invitations that we don't get because people are going to a non-kosher restaurant. And I think that is really that's really painful. That's hard. That's definitely a challenge and a struggle. It's a struggle worth having. It's a struggle worth dealing with it. But but for me, that 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 is really struggle. Also, say a struggle for me is I'm sometimes not the most careful person in the world. So when I'm cooking, sometimes I can mess something up. It can be frustrating. And uh, Rabbi Rachel will say to me in the house, "I marked it a million times. I marked that draw of meat. I marked that one meat, and I still I still mess it up because again, I didn't grow up with it. I learned this. My you know, I had to learn this later in life, and that must be very frustrating to Rabbi Rachel. But it's also like frustrating to me because I'm like in the middle of cooking and. So those things are, are certainly a struggle. But in the end, of course, with all these things, the love and the love of doing it and the, the, the commitment and the, the, the part of, of being part of the Torah and doing something that the God wants of us in the world and the holiness of how that connects us to God keeps me going with kosher all the time. So Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. It's your turn now. Um, I think that um, I love a lot about keeping kosher. I love that it connects me to my family, to the Jewish people, to our tradition. Um, so many times throughout the day, it, it's kind of everything. It's kind of that's how we started this conversation. That how you eat and what you choose to eat determines so much of your life. Um, and I love that 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 core anchoring part of my daily life is rooted in Judaism. It's rooted in my family. It's rooted in Jewish tradition, Jewish law, God, Torah, all of the things that I love. I think um, I never really struggled with kashrut until we had our child. Um, and then it's been a real struggle. We have a three-year-old and it's been a struggle to figure out how do we engage with kashrut when it's not just decisions we're making for ourselves, but it's decisions we're making for another human being in the world. She is three and she absolutely loves milk. She was she basically survives on milk. She's not, not a big Yeah, not a big eater otherwise and just loves milk. Um, and so, you know, we want to give her a little bit of chicken or a little bit of meat. Um, but she wants to eat she wants to drink milk with her meal. She loves milk. Um, and figuring out, well, how do we you know, we didn't. That's something we didn't talk about with custard is waiting times between eating dairy and meat. But we wait. We wait several hours between after we eat meat before we'll eat dairy again. But wait, is several hours to a three-year-old if she eats meat for dinner, then she's not drinking milk the rest of the night. She won't have milk before bed. So, kind of navigating and struggling and figuring out, well, what are my values and what are we trying to teach her and at what age is it appropriate to teach these things? Um, that's been a real struggle and something that I think we're still navigating. 100%. Yeah. Oh, that was a good one. That was a good struggle. 
yeah, I feel feel very similarly. Well, I hope you enjoy this. Um, this has been a fun conversation to have and really think about. No, I just think we want to invite you. Um, let us know what you want us to talk about on our next podcast. Yeah, we want to, we want to know what you want to hear about. We don't want to just talk about the subjects that we're interested. We want to hear what you. We want to talk about what you want to hear about. So yeah, get it. Let us know what what kind of insights into our daily Jewish practice are you interested in any of the um, the conversations that we have in our own home about different practices that we take on or that we struggle with things that are going on in the world that you are curious what is the Jewish view on this topic that's happening in the news or in your life we want to know let us know what you want us to talk about you can email us at living Jewishly podcast at gmail.com and of course remember to rate review, and subscribe to our podcast. Um, it just really helps our podcast. To do it. So just remember, rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. It really helps us get, get our message out, get our podcast out. If you enjoy this, please feel free to share it with a friend. That would be wonderful as well. But most of all, I hope you come back and listen again, because uh, I hope you live Jewishly. We would also like to thank Colleen Deeker and Jeffrey Baldinger for our awesome, awesome theme music. Thank you so much, and I hope everyone enjoys it. Celebrate the words of Torah with Marcus.